0: In a 2017 performance in New York City, stand-up comedian Josh Johnson tells the story of catfishing the KKK. Johnson recalls being a 14-year-old black boy growing up in Alexandria, Alabama in 2004 and spending the hours after school before his mom got home on Craigslist's connection page.
1: On this particular day, I was just scrolling through all of Craigslist and I saw (sighs) that there was an ad... The ad just read, join the KKK (laughs) (laughs) question mark. (laughs) 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 And so naturally, I was like, dope. (laughs) 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 And so I started a correspondence with this dude named Dale. And like, I, I felt kind of bad, cause like, if you're hurting that bad in 2004 for recruitments so that you need a Craigslist ad, then we must be making progress. <laughs> like.
0: Johnson's story is both bizarre and believably mundane. Illuminating the intriguing way in which the white bar movement has always situated itself in a duplicitous position of public and private hidden in plain sight. My name is Lynn Grosha, and on this podcast I investigate how the white power movement capitalizes on this private-public dynamic, how the internet has heightened this duality, and what viable and multidisciplinary solutions to combating white supremacy on the internet looks like. While racism and white supremacy have been long facts of American history, The alt-right, as the precursor of what we know today, rose in the 1970s and 80s. This new iteration of white supremacy not only rejected the state, but targeted it, often calling for a race war that would establish a white homeland, and that united various white supremacist ideologies and groups under this call. Operating in cell-style organization, or what looks like leaderless resistance, This organizational style has historically provided challenges to law enforcement's ability to connect individuals to the extensive organized movement, and similarly has contributed to modern reportings of white supremacist domestic terrorism that tend to psychoanalyze and ascribe lone wolf diagnoses.
2: It is the loose affected individuals who are motivated by the rhetoric and the ideology who are far more likely to engage in violence. The leaders do not tend to engage in violence, although they encourage it. We don't believe in lone wolves because their ideology and their belief system came from somewhere. They didn't just spontaneously, organically arise out of the earth.
0: This is Art Gibson, an associate professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Dayton, who has been researching white racial extremism since the early 1990s. His coined term white racialists is an umbrella term that includes white supremacists, white separatists, and white nationalists while acknowledging their differences. This term and art's work aims to demystify these groups by revealing to be organized, institutionalized, and often overlapping social movements that employ the same tactics as any other.
2: They use what works. And they define what works as something that leads people to believe as they believe, leads people to act as they would act. So protests, rallies, flags, posters, slogans. Um, But at the end of the day, the most successful tactics and strategies are interpersonal. So I was involved in some participant observation with a group called Teamsters for a Democratic Union that was based in Detroit. And I noticed that these white supremacist and white nationalist groups were trying to recruit Teamsters to join them. So they were reaching out to working class and middle class um, whites because Teamsters were individuals who had disposable income, they they had a reliable income, and they were well situated in their communities. So this was a calculated effort by uh, white racial extremists to appear more viable by incorporating um, not only just simply more members, but also members who were gainfully employed who were um, well-positioned in their communities. And what I mean by that is that they were respected.
0: This tactical recruitment demonstrated by white power groups that moves their movement towards the mainstream has continued well into the age of the internet, which has become perhaps the greatest tool in their arsenal. From the start, white power groups have capitalized on the very mechanisms of the internet that the average person associates with the democratization of the internet, free speech, and privacy. Jesse Daniels, a professor of sociology at Hunter College at the Graduate Center of CUNY, calls the alt-right innovation opportunists, and their tactics have indeed been extensive.
3: In the early days of um, the World Wide Web, in in the late 1990s, Part of what white supremacists were doing then was exploiting the use of URLs. One of the ways that they did this was through cloaked websites, like the martinlutherking.org URL was owned for many years by white supremacists, and there was a tribute site that looked like it was a tribute to Dr. King, but once you dug a little bit deeper, you saw that it was really a white supremacist site.
0: Today, White Supremacy Online exploits the ways algorithms work. Propagating memes, symbols, and misinformation campaigns that manipulate algorithms designed for engagement, controversy, and polarity. As Jesse Daniels explains, algorithms confirm the pre-existing racist beliefs of those like Dylan Roof, who googled black-on-white crime and received sources tailored to his worldview. Algorithms also speed up the spread of white supremacist ideology into the mainstream, as memes like Pepe the Frog move from fringe threads on 4chan to mainstream news sites. Most importantly, the white power movement thrives on platforms that ensure anonymity, provide encryption, and hesitate to moderate.
3: Whatever platform you go to, um, white supremacists are going to be there and they're going to figure out what it is about the app that will let them spread their ideology and they will exploit that. I think that's one of the things that people really haven't focused much attention on is how vulnerable every platform is to white supremacists. The
2: Capitol riots starkly reveals that. It starkly reveals um, these connections, these organizations, these actors, and how deeply some of these ideologies have have been planted and sowed uh, some, some very bitter harvest.
0: On January 6th, a mob violently stormed the Capitol building, attuning our national awareness to the reality and depths of white supremacy in the United States. With this awareness is a growing perception of government tactics employed to combat white supremacy. Following the riot, law enforcement mobilized facial recognition technology, utilized hacked GPS data from social media platform Parler, and wielded photo, video, and live stream evidence taken by rioters and posted to their social media, all to identify and arrest insurrectionists. Seeing the features of the internet that are so often perverted by the white power movement, turned around and used against them, we must ask about the implications and viability of these solutions.
4: So there's like inherent tension um, for privacy advocates who also want to hold those responsible for the Capitol riots, who want them to be brought to justice. And that's, I think, mostly because like identifying those responsible might require either greater quantity or quality of surveillance techniques. This is Hannah Hillegoss,
0: a second year student at Harvard Law School studying the intersections of law and emerging
4: digital technology. These competing goals uh, that make dealing with white supremacy online really tricky. Generally, white supremacist groups are benefiting from the fact that these platforms have historically taken a very hands-off approach to content moderation. But for privacy, for example, there's been a big push for end-to-end encryption on messaging apps, um, which is hugely important for things like journalism and human rights advocacy. and White supremacist groups will benefit from end-to-end encryption, just like everybody else. And this is what I actually don't have a good answer for, because I don't think that the desire to surveil white supremacist groups is sufficient to curb everybody else's privacy as well.
0: The internet landscape that enables white supremacy is not naturally occurring, and in fact looks different when we compare the US to continental Europe. Jesse Daniels explains the U.S.-Europe cyber hate divide that makes the U.S. a haven for online hate.
3: A misunderstanding of the First Amendment as protecting hate speech online is part of what has led the U.S. to not have any regulations about hate speech online. In Europe, they have a very different approach to free speech, which is grounded in human rights. And so the idea is that free speech is an important value in a democracy, but that value has to be balanced against other human rights, including the right not to be annihilated or have someone else advocate for your annihilation. Um, So so it's a different kind of approach to free speech. Because of that, there is certain kinds of speech that's illegal in Europe. So it creates this imbalance where if people want to, for example, host a website that we would say has hate speech on it, they're much more likely to put it in the U.S. on a U.S.-based server than elsewhere.
0: Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is one of the most targeted US laws in the effort to combat online hate speech. CDA 230 protects online intermediaries who publish user speech, like social media platforms. This protection guards publishers from liability for what their users post, even if that includes white supremacists and other varieties of hate speech. Although the freedom of speech does not apply to businesses, the First Amendment does raise potential issues for the hopes of effective laws.
4: Even without CDA 230, I'm not sure how much liability internet services would incur from this type of like white supremacist speech, mostly because the white supremacist content would have to violate some existing law. The First Amendment does actually protect some forms of hate speech, and in fact, like some hate speech laws or a lot of hate speech laws have been struck down in the courts under the First Amendment because they've been too restrictive of speech. So I would be interested to see actually like how much liability these platforms would incur without CDA 230. And to do that, you'd have to see like what law, like you'd have to figure out basically what law would it violate, like what law does white supremacist speech violate. So that being said, I think that there are there has to be a way for the government to like form re- regulation that incentivizes platforms like Facebook and Twitter and whatnot to be like more responsible in content in their content moderation practices. I don't know what that is.
0: While the increased efforts of platforms to moderate have been crucial to creating safer online spaces, in the long term, deplatforming is not going to de-radicalize white supremacists. Ultimately, the problem of white supremacy on the internet is much more systemic. William Fry is a third-year student at the School of Social Work at Columbia University. William studies the practices of racial-ethnic socialization on social media and facilitates a space called a Space for Uprooting Whiteness, a weekly intergroup dialogue with white graduate students at the School of Social Work. In this space, Students focus on two reframes. The first asks white individuals to shift from an identity framework to a positionality framework. William problematizes the mindset that locates racism and its end within the individual.
5: If we come in with, I am white, you know, and and I need to engage in anti-racist work, I need to be harmless. I can, you know, stop saying the n-word, I can be fully PC, I can stop harming people. In a lot of ways, racism doesn't operate that way. There is no theory of separation where me as will I can like suddenly reach this point where I'm no longer a part of this. That racism, if it is systematic, then my involvement is more complex than just my individual actions within it.
0: The second framework asks for a shift from the aim of white reformation to white abolition, where in a reformation framework,
5: White folks come to these practices to reform themselves, that I can create this healthy form of whiteness, and then I can be this healthy or the good white person, right? For me, whiteness, and and I think a lot of literature poses this too, whiteness is a system of domination. And so based in that, there is no form of healthy whiteness. There is only, like, the abolition of whiteness um, that we actually need to disinvest from whiteness.
0: The problem of white supremacy on the internet is not one that can be tackled overnight, but instead requires a platter of short and long-term solutions. In the short term, we need moderation from platforms to create safe online spaces and laws that ban the most extreme forms of hate speech while balancing the goals of data privacy and the First Amendment. In the long term, we need to consider both the platforms we are creating and using, but also the environments of the tech industry that produce them. To close my podcast, I offer a question posed by William.
5: What does it mean to create interventions in those spaces? You know, what might it mean to... Um, create intentional digital space um, that engages and tries to disinvest white folks in, 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 in whiteness.